pounds of walking in there, they're like, wow, that guy, that meat's got to be marbled just right. I mean, I got a lot of marbling going on here, if you know what that means. But anyway, um, what got me is, is they talk about these things, absolute wickedness uh, to kill children, to kill adults, uh, to eat one another. Uh, it was just wicked. But in their presentation, they said that it was the influence of uh, Christianity that changed these practices. And I've already shared with some of you what impacted me the most is, you know what happened? Jesus came. Some church hundreds of years ago was faithful to send missionaries. Some missionaries probably showed up on the island and most likely some of them were killed and even eaten in proclaiming the gospel. But through the proclamation of the gospel, these cultures were literally transformed. And I want to ask you a question. What do you think would happen if, 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 if those missionaries weren't faithful? What if there was no Jesus? What if there was no truth of the gospel? I have no doubt in my mind these practices would still be going on today. The devil would be having a field day as people were just killing uh, and wickedness was prevailing. But what transformed that culture, what transformed those individuals was the gospel of Jesus Christ. People were faithful to go there to proclaim truth that transformed lives. And that still goes on today. That's very much why we live simply so others might simply live, that we might push the gospel out even further. Because I'm telling you, there is still wickedness throughout the world. And in many cases, have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we live and we speak about truth and we talk about the gospel being truth that transforms and, and there seems to be some confusion about truth these days. We kind of moved into this relativistic idea of truth. By that I mean it's what I say is truth. Now in some cases that's true in our home that we never can agree on the temperature. It's always too hot for me, it's too cold for Debbie. Uh, those are miscellaneous things. But where it gets serious is when we talk about moral issues about truth and truth has been revealed in scripture but as our country moves away from that we're moving more to relative it's all about what i say is truth your truth may not agree with my truth you may think that stealing's wrong whereas i think stealing is, per is perfectly appropriate and i think we've lived in this country long enough to see as we're drifting away from the moorings of our faith of judeo-christian values we see that more prevalent so we've got more wickedness going on, what we would define as wickedness based on what's been revealed in Scripture. There's danger to relative truth. There's physical danger. You and I might disagree about the effects of gravity. You know, you may say, no, seriously, at 9.8 meters per second, things fall to the ground. I'm like, ah, bogus. And we may go to a cliff, and I may jump out, and halfway down, I'm like, wow, that was truth. So there is a physical danger, but guys, there is a spiritual danger to relative truth also. You know, and I know there's a great difficulty sometimes as we try to share our faith and we try to share the gospel and the truth claims of Scripture. People say, quit judging me. You're trying to judge me, and I want to try to help you this morning to change that conversation because in truth, only God judges. But I, what I try to turn the conversation is, listen, I'm not judging you. Only God does that. But listen, I am warning you that one day we're going to stand before a holy God, and he is going to judge us. He will judge us based on absolute truth that has been revealed in Scripture. So, friend, I'm not judging. I am trying to warn you that God is not a relative God. He is a holy God, and he has revealed his moral law in the Old Testament, and by that we will be judged. There is absolute truth. I am absolutely confident because I have experienced it 
in my own life. Mike and I were discussing several weeks ago about Scripture, and, and uh, you know, people are always attacking Scripture. And, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, there is a peace being in the truth of the gospel. There is a peace knowing that as I look at the world, the wickedness is in the world, uh, the transformation that's occurring in some lives in the world is seemingly the direction we're going as a nation in the world. There is a sense of peace because the truth in me, it explains exactly what I see. I don't have to see, well, the Bible's true, but you just got to kind of accept this secondary argument to try to support that truth claim. No, the Bible stands all alone, all by itself. It is truth without any mixture of error. It is the truth that we will all be judged by. It is absolute truth. No secondary arguments needed. In our country today, I know lawmakers are striving to regulate as many things as possible as wickedness tends to rise in our nation. I think we would all agree as Americans, wickedness is rising, and all manner of wickedness is rising in our country. And, and they're trying to regulate it. And what they're regulating is really symptoms of a deeper problem, a deeper spiritual issue. We are drifting away from that which brought us together as a people, that which made us strong. And you cannot regulate that out. Let me share this with you. If God was to send an awesome revival in this country and people repented of sin and, and turned in faith, believing in Jesus Christ and with a passion to make him Lord of their life, is it not true that I could have a howitzer in my backyard and no one would have to fear? Because they know I love God and I serve God and I would never use that intentionally to harm anybody. Hey, what's this button do? Boom. Oop. Sorry, Fred. Car. Insurance cover that? But you get the point I'm after. You could own just about anything. You could be free because in your heart of hearts you love God and you love your neighbors yourself and you wouldn't cause them any harm. But we keep trying to regulate things. And what needs to happen is a transformation of a heart. People need to come to understand Jesus Christ and the truth that can transform their life. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now listen to this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There is a peace being in the truth of the gospel. And I know many times people will challenge the truth of the gospel. And I want to put a plug in right now, if you don't mind, about small groups. Because Craig Smith, raise your hand, Craig. No, higher. There you go. We were in small groups, and man, he, he, he provided such a beautiful illustration of how to uh, defend Scripture with those who challenge it. Because I don't think we should be a church, and I know Pastor Mike does not want us to be a church. We believe just, well, because we believe. Because Daddy believed, because Mike believed. Man, we, we have the truth. The truth always stands on its own. But bear with me here, and let me just walk through this, and, and I would encourage you to try to memorize this, because it's good stuff. Just take your hand, and on your hand, there's a little small finger over here called the pinky. starts with a P. And think of prophetic word. Prophetic word. The odds of one person fulfilling all the promises that were prophesied in the Old Testament about the Messiah to actually occur in one individual, the odds are astronomical. All that was prophesied about the Messiah came true in the person of Jesus Christ. 
He fulfilled everything that was mentioned. He is yet to fill some of the kingdom coming literally here, but everything about the suffering servant has been fulfilled. So it is a prophetic word. And if you look at your ring finger, and I, I was talking to him this morning, I messed this up, but I think you'll get the same idea. There is a ring and there's kind of a continuous or a, a continuity in the ring. There is one simple message throughout Scripture, and it is consistent. It speaks of one theme. It has 40 authors. 66 books written over 2,000 years, but yet it has a central theme. Man's sinfulness, God's love, God's provision of Jesus Christ that our sins might be forgiven and that we, if we trust in Him as our Lord and Savior, we have the hope of eternal life with Him in heaven. It's consistently through there. And it's just shocking to me that 40-plus uh, authors written over 2,000 years and 66 books can maintain this continuity. So think of that. Now we got the big finger. I didn't say the other B thing, but the big finger. You know what the Bible does? It answers the big questions in life. Um, those, 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 those epistemology, well, just who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? You know, of all creation, we humans are the only ones that ask those type of questions because within us uh, resides a soul, a spirit that God had breathed in. So we ask those questions, and the Bible answers those questions. What is my purpose? The, the, the chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy, just bring glory to God and be about His calling. And, that, and to some folks, like, that's not much, man, that's everything. That's everything. If you don't know him this morning, I pray you trust him and you find him. But you know what? Then you got this finger, and we always use that finger for pointing. And you know about the Bible? It kind of talks about a lot of things that has happened in the past. It, and, and every time archaeology, archaeology, people who dig in the dirt to find stuff, <laughs> where there was doubt about what the Scripture claimed before, about certain cities, about certain cultures, guess what? I was like, oh, well, here they are. We found them. It validates Scripture. Not one time have archaeologists found something and said, whoa, 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 the Bible says this, but we're finding this over here. So as it points and reaches back in history, it validates all the claims of Scripture. But I really like this one, the thumb. The truth of the gospel transforms lives. It changes lives. It can make a drug addict clean. It can make someone caught in homosexuality, homosexuality set free. It can change us from being enemies of God to friends of God. It can have all the sins that we've ever created or ever will create purged and allow God to adopt us as his children, transforming lives. And the last thing, and you get this because you come to the second service and Craig reminded me of this, is the fist. The Bible fights back. No other book has ever been attacked so vigorously as Scripture, but yet it still stands here today saying, I am truth. I am revealing the will of God. I am revealing the very word of God. It fights back. So I encourage you to, man, to kind of grab a hold of that because it kind of fits in. And I know this has been a, a kind of a long introductory, but it really fits into what I want to talk about, the scripture we met. As I search scripture, and man, you find a lot of people whose lives have been transformed by God. Man, Paul just kind of reaches out and jumps at me. It jumps at me because here is a man who hated Jesus Christ, hated Christianity. But somehow, well not somehow, God intervened and his life was radically transformed by this truth. And he became a passionate lover of Jesus Christ. There's only one thing that can explain this. And that is the truth of the gospel. That it is truth. 
I mean, as a matter of fact, as you and I grow, we, we change on things, even uh, academic things, as uh, we learn something. Oh, okay, I see now. And, 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 and we better understand things. Uh, the truth of the gospel is very much that same way. That's how cultures can change. As the Spirit illuminates truth in their life, um, they, they grab hold of this truth and they don't let it go. They grab hold of God. They grab hold of the gospel and don't let it go. And as a result, their lives are changed and cultures are radically changed. So that is primarily, I know that's been a long introductory, and I hope you've kind of hung in for that, but I want to look at the life of Paul now, the transformation that took place in his life. There is no doubt that Paul initially struggled against the truth. Um, we know here in verses 9 through 11, I'm not going to read them again, but maybe you can peruse through them, and I'll just bring out some points. He says himself, his own testimony was, he was hostile to the name of Jesus and those that followed him. He was hostile he went about to purposely cause them harm. He sought and received authority to place as many in prison as he could capture, and he even concurred when they were being put to death. He was furiously enraged at Christians, is the latter part of what verse 11 would say, furiously enraged at them, and I kept pursuing, pursuing them even to foreign places. This is amazing. I think Scripture reveals here's a man that absolutely despised anything to do with Jesus Christ. Do you see that in Scripture? How did, such, how did a life such as Paul's experience such a radical change? Obviously, on the road to Damascus when Jesus met him, but were there seeds of faith that were possibly planted earlier? That's what I want to explore a little bit this morning. If we go back to Acts chapter 7, verse 58... Uh, you can go or just kind of hang out here and, and we'll come back. The first time Paul, whose name then was Saul, is mentioned is at the latter end of a sermon or a testimony provided by Stephen. In verse 58, it says, When they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's interesting, and I have to question myself, why, why would Luke record that here? Why would he mention just in passing that, by the way, Saul was at the stoning of Stephen? He heard Stephen's testimony, and what was Stephen there for? Because he was preaching Jesus. And they basically said, give an account. Now, Stephen did an interesting thing. He recounted the history of Israel all the way back to Abraham. And he talked about even the patriarchs, uh, where they sold Joseph into slavery. And it says something very interesting, but God was with Joseph. So right from the get-go, the one whose God hand was on, the patriarchs rejected. There was a rebellion against God. It goes on and introduces the idea of Moses. And y'all remember the account how they just loved Moses and, oh, man, you are the man. We are behind you 100%, Moses. Wherever you say go, we're right behind you because we know you're God's man. Everybody remember reading that? No. <laughs> Not exactly how it happened, right? Oh, they followed him for a bit. They were always questioning his authority. At one point, what was it? Hey, Moses is never coming down. Let's just build us a golden calf and let's head back to Egypt. Stephen is trying to introduce the idea that your fathers were rebelling against the will of God, against the word of God, against the truth revealing God. That seems to be in our history. 
And then he concludes with this. Look at verse 51, or just listen, in chapter 7. He is concluding his testimony. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. And he's talking about rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He is laying a history of rebellion at her feet. He says, you've always rebelled against the way of God, and now you are rebelling against the Messiah that God has provided to have our sins forgiven. Now, how can you imagine this went over? It's amazing about the word of God when it's proclaimed. You remember Peter in Acts chapter 2 preached the sermon how Jesus was the Messiah. You guys are guilty. His blood is on your hands. At that instant, it cut their heart. And they repented, and thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ. But in this instance, we are going to kill the messenger. We are going to kill Stephen. But what I want to bring to your mind is Paul was there hearing this testimony. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. He's hearing Stephen's testimony, and he is very much aware of Israel's history. And there is something inside of Paul that must have been ringing true with what Stephen is saying. Well, what effect did it have on Paul? Paul became passionate. Passionate about the gospel? No. Passionate about crushing this truth that's being proclaimed. Here's something I know about truth, and and maybe you can identify. Truth can be encouraging, can it not? When somebody shares truth with you, it can be encouraging. Something maybe you invest a lot of time and a lot of effort in, and somebody comes alongside you and says, man, you're doing great. I think you're dead on. You're spot on. That, that, that's kind of encouraging. But at the same time, somebody may come along something you've been doing or pursuing for some time and say, listen, you're wasting your time. You're on the wrong track. You're heading in the wrong direction. Uh, that would tend to be discouraging. Would you agree with that? And I want to tie this back to Paul because even if there is a work on the inside that we don't know of because it's not recorded in Scripture, I'm actually using just maybe a little bit of sanctified imagination here. But, uh, but, but I think Paul's wrestling with this truth. And how he is responding to it is with a passionate rejection of it. It, it can happen to me this way. Hey, I've been on a diet for three months and I lost four pounds. I'm considering writing a book, okay? <laughs> but you may come up to me and you say, man, Brother Jimmy, you lost some weight. That's encouraging. And it's true. You know, knocking out four pounds, that ain't nothing to frown about. <laughs> Amen? Somebody give me some encouragement here. That's encouraging. But what is also is true, Brother Jimmy, you're about 30 pounds overweight. You need to draw about 30 more. That's still true. But it's very discouraging. And there is something within my flesh that wants to respond this way. Yeah, I'm 30 pounds overweight, but you're ugly. (laughs) And guess what? I can lose weight. You're stuck with ugly. That could be a response, but that isn't a very emotional response for a truth that may have cut me pretty deeply, right? But I'm going to tell you something. If you have somebody that loves you enough to pull you aside and speak truth into your life, man, you need to receive that, even if it hurts, even if it hurts. Amen? 
I'm trying to build a case that, that, that this sermon that Stephen, or not sermon, testimony that Stephen gave about rejecting the Messiah, though Paul responded very aggressively against, I think it began to do a work. There was a seed of faith planted in his heart. That's what I'm arguing this morning. For Paul, almost everything he believed up to this point about a relationship with God had been challenged. Hey, he was a Pharisee, and we know the Pharisees. Well, man, they're very strict. His own testimony back in, in chapter 26. What did it say as he's talking to Agrippa? So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I live as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He's saying, I lived a very strict religious life. I, if anyone, is going to find favor with God, it's going to be me because of my outward cleanness, my outward righteousness. But God doesn't deal with that. So this was a struggle for Paul. It would cause him to, for everything he has learned up to this point, to cast aside and embrace the one he despised the most as the true Messiah. That was a struggle. That had to be a struggle. Was it worth it? In Philippians, Paul gives his testimony this way. He said, I was all these things. Man, I was a Pharisee. I was a follower of the law. Man, I, I was of the premier tribe of Israel. But he said this, but I count all that you would count as worth as garbage compared to what I have found in Jesus Christ. What can explain that dramatic transformation? The truth of the gospel. That's what explains that work in Paul's life. I want to talk a little bit about application. Based on what we're talking about, Paul's struggle and hearing Stephen give testimony of the Messiah and, and how important it is, is not to be rebellious against God moving. People struggle just like Paul. Many people have their own understanding, even today, probably even within the walls of this church, what it takes to be right with God. And so many times it is really mixed in as you talk with people about something I must do. Oh, yeah, yeah, it can be anything from Jesus is nothing to Jesus is something, but yeah, there is something I must do. When the gospel is very clear, there is nothing you can do. The Bible is very clear that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear there is none righteous, not even one. It takes righteousness to be in the presence of God. But the Bible has this beautiful, beautiful truth. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross of Calvary, and I shared this with those that go through the essential class, is a beautiful intersection of God's justice and God's grace. we got to understand God is perfect in all his attributes, and one of those is justice. He must be just. He must judge sin. And if we're all sinners, then we're miserably doomed, except God had made a way. He offered up his only son who never sinned as a substitute for us. Where this great transaction could take place, our sin placed upon him. God's wrath is poured upon the cross of Calvary on his own son. Jesus' righteousness is now imputed to us. 
and we are declared righteousness because of Christ. God is just because his wrath is poured out on his own son for sin. Whose sin? Our sin. He's merciful because he provided Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. That is the truth that liberates cultures. That's truth that, 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 that transforms people and cultures. Something else I want to notice. It cost, for Paul to hear the truth of the gospel, it cost something. It cost Stephen his life. There must have been something that had to stir inside of Saul. I believe Saul thought what he was doing was pleasing to God. But yet here is a man who is speaking truth as affecting Paul on the inside. And yet in his last breath, this person being stoned for their belief is saying things like, Father, forgive them. Hold not this against them. I want you to just meditate on that just a little bit. People have wholeheartedly rejected you, and now they have drug you out to a field, and they are killing you slowly. I'm fearful that if that was me, there'd be questions like, God, why? Why? Didn't I preach the truth? I thought this was supposed to be a path to easy road. I was supposed to have a three-car garage and a 2,000-square-foot home and a vacation every year. But they're stoning me. And shame on them anyway. Boy, they don't know how wrong they are. It's not what Stephen said, is it? Father, forgive them. Lay not this at their charge. For someone who desires to love God and please God, this had to have an impact on his life. And what I want to share with you, church, if we're going to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost us something. I'm so glad we set aside this month, this Simply Live month, so we can kind of be indoctrinated in this idea of, you know what, I need to sacrifice so that the gospel might be proclaimed to people who have never heard it. In the 1040 window, that Middle East area that is rejecting and killing Christians, and y'all heard testimony from Travis here about those whose even children being yanked out of the homes because they trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is today. This is today. But you know what? That culture needs to be transformed. And there's only one way, just like, just like um, uh, with those in the Hawaiian island chains, the Polynesian people, the only way that's going to happen is people faithfully give to the proclamation of the gospel, faithfully pray that God might make his way in there, might intercede, might speak to their hearts, and that people might actually go. And in going, some might be killed. People ask me, wow, is it dangerous to go to Ethiopia? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't felt threatened there at all. But at any time, something could happen. And if they know you're here preaching Jesus and you're trying to share the gospel in the hopes that a life would be transformed, called out of the darkness of Islam into the light of the gospel, a lot can happen very quickly. Very quickly. Is it worth it? Church, the only reason you and I are here today and trust Jesus Christ and have experienced the life that is in Christ is because somebody faithfully told us. How dare us to say, uh-uh, that's just too dangerous. 
it broke my heart, even in this words to works ministry. I know Scott's been working a lot down there, and uh, the pastor down there said many churches call, but they say, well, how dangerous is it? Well, it's the north side of Jacksonville. I mean, there's a lot of homeless folks there. There's, the first night we showed up, there was three or four guys on the ground with police cars all around. And he said, well, we want to make sure our people are safe. That hurt me somewhat. It hurt me a little bit. So we're only carrying the gospel to people that are in safe locations? That there's no risk to our own self? Listen, those who are in the hurting locations need to hear the gospel the most. They see no way out. They have no exposure to what truth is. Their best hope is that when they die, that maybe, perchance, God might look upon my poor, uh, pitiful self and have mercy. But according to Scripture, there is no other name given under heaven by where a person can be saved than through Jesus Christ. So it may cost us something, but the truth has got to go out. And let me share this last point from this. is just because people demonstrate hatred for the gospel when we present it to them does not mean that God is not working. If you've shared the faith at all, I'm sure there's been times, listen, I don't want to hear it. I think you're an idiot. I think it's ridiculous. It's silly. Get away from me. And you might walk away brokenhearted. Like, oh my goodness. But listen, you cannot see what's going on in the heart of that individual. Stephen just simply preached the gospel and trusted God. I don't believe he had any idea of what the truth may be doing in the life of Saul. He was there. He was listening. He was consenting unto his death. But why does the Bible put Saul here? Except to show that truth is starting to be sown in his life. So just because people reject even violently the gospel as you share it love them pray for them encourage them because again you don't know what god's doing paul at first struggled against the truth but paul finally surrendered to the truth back in chapter 26 verse 19 a simple verse after jesus had appeared to saul and told him what he was calling him to paul tells king agrippa so king agrippa I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Based on all the truth that has been revealed to me, I did not prove disobedient. I became a follower of Jesus Christ. We read the account in verses 12 through 18, the whole account where Jesus met him on that road and the bright light shone around him. Man, there is so much truth to be just gathered there. And, and we can stay here to 3 o'clock, and I can probably get a quarter of it done. Everybody up for that? Okay, so we'll get done sooner. No, I'm seriously, there are so much here, the light in the middle of the day. But what really captured me briefly, and I just want to make a quick note of this, is Jesus directly associates himself with the church. He told Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus was already ascended. But, and Paul was persecuting the church, and it, Jesus is in essence saying... When you persecute the church, you are persecuting me because they are mine and I am theirs. We are one. I just thought that was cool. You know, when people want to beat up me or say bad things about me, uh, you know what? They're not necessarily saying about me. They're saying it to Jesus. And whoa, man, that's, that's dangerous ground to be traveling on. It's nice to have an older, bigger, stronger brother. Amen? Well, let's go on. That was just free. What really captured my attention in verse 14 is this. Look, and when he had fallen on the ground, Paul, 
I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we talked about that. But listen to this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. That really just kind of captured my attention as I was studying, as I was preparing, and also in light of what I've already shared this morning. It was a common proverb used back then, and we even use it today. You ever hear anybody, and, and maybe, I hope it's not an old thing, I hope not, but you ever hear say, well, uh, what are you doing with those people? Well, I'm kind of goading them along. Has anybody heard that? Please raise your hand. Thank you, brother. I don't know if you love me in line, but anyway, thank you. No, I'm just kidding. No, we've used that. We'll go to them along. What are we saying? We're trying to encourage them to move in an area. I may be a, a middle school teacher, and, on, and we're on a field trip, and I'm trying to goad them to the entrance. I'm trying to goad them, if I'm at the zoo, to different exhibits to see. I'm, I'm goading them along. Well, back in that day, an ox goad, or a goading ox, was used by a person who owned an ox. And it was a long stick, had a sharp point. Uh, some people even took stone and sharpened it up. Some even had metal. And the idea, let's face it, an ox is a little bit bigger than a human. And if the ox really got in his mind to do something, it could be pretty serious, right? So you had this ox go, but a sharp point, if the ox moved to be turned to the right, you didn't want him to go right, kind of got his attention. If he continued to rebel, you dig a little bit deeper until he gets the idea it's going to benefit me to walk straight. I mean, you see the picture of a goad and how it was used during that day. As we look at this, you know, and I, I really believe this works with people, too. I kind of shared this in the first service. I hope nobody called anybody. But, you know, when I was young and you got sent to the office, it usually meant some smacks. And it was amazing how effective the Board of Education, when it reached the seat of understanding, how it will direct the path of kids sometimes. You'll get that later, Board of Education, seat of understanding. But the goad had the same type of effect uh, to the ox. Now, here, Jesus is saying, Saul, Saul, you're persecuting me. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, the goads is plural. So that means there has been multiple goads by God. It's not just one goad right here. Now, this is certainly when Paul uh, converted to Christ and started trusting him as Lord. But there had been goads, plural. And that, that's where I kind of go back to. This is not a one-time thing. Paul had been wrestling with this truth for some time, a truth that he couldn't explain. Why are these people willingly going to their death, trusting in Jesus as their Savior? There must be something true in them that has radically transformed their life that they're willing to count everything in this world as nothing compared to what they're going to receive in heaven when they die. It was, it was obvious. It was a testimony to Paul. And I believe these goads were seeds of truth that God was planting in his heart beginning back when Stephen gave testimony back in Acts where we talked about a while ago. He was there. I can't put together why else Luke would record that Paul was there. Nothing that he was there and people laid clothes at his feet. Not that he was participating in the stone, but he was there. He heard. He would have known that everything that Stephen had shared was truth. He understood the messianic hopes of the patriarchal fathers, that the Messiah would come. He understood, because he was a Pharisee, very familiar with Israel's history, that often they rebelled against God's prophets. They rebelled against his word. He would believe that God has the power to raise people from the dead because he's a Pharisee. And we now have to consider now if his own actions were being rebellious against God. You see how this seed of belief starts to work in a life? Man, I love God. I think I'm doing the right things. I think I have the right thoughts about God. But now I see the truth 
that these folks are claiming about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. And I can't beat it out of them. I can't cause them to confess otherwise. Goad to the heart. Constant goads of truth to the heart. What amazes me most and kind of helps support what I'm sharing with you now is back in chapter 26, verse 6, Paul says this, And now I am standing trial, as he's talking to Agrippa, I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 8, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? You know what's funny? Stephen said that same thing. That was the substance of his sermon or his testimony is the promise made to our fathers about the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is using that same testimony before Agrippa that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that was promised to our fathers. And why do y'all refuse to believe that he has been risen from the dead? Is it impossible for God to raise from the dead? The answer is no. He is sharing this testimony. That's what I'm saying. I hope you can see that this morning. It's very important uh, that we share the gospel. It's very important that we live out the gospel. It's important that even when times seem rough and difficult as we're living out this gospel, that people are watching us. Some may be refuting us strongly. You are silly. You are crazy. You're an idiot. But if God, it's up to God to start working on that inside heart as they observe us live out the Christian faith, as we speak the truth in love. And ultimately, isn't it not up to God to grant the increase? It is. It is. Live out. Be faithful. Allow this truth to start being sowed in the hearts of your friends. As we look at the conversion of Paul here in chapter 26, ask some questions. Did Paul gain more theological knowledge about Jesus? So he was intellectually satisfied that Jesus was the Messiah? I think the answer is no. That's not what did it. Did he fall on hard times and decide to follow Jesus so perhaps maybe even Jesus could help him? I say no. Matter of fact, quite the opposite. As the world would judge things, he had it all. He had a position of power, prestige, authority. But again, I go back to Philippians where he said, all that, all this worldly gain, I count it but garbage, dung as compared to what I found in Christ. So no, that can't be it. Did he have a need to fellowship with some good friends doing good things? No. Christians at the time were being in prison and killed. Couldn't have been that. There's only one thing that changed Paul's heart, and that was an encounter with Jesus Christ that he himself initiated. And you know, ultimately, that's what's going to change the hearts and lives of those we minister to. We all have our sphere of influence. We do. We've got friends that don't know Jesus. We've got neighbors. We've got co-workers. And ultimately, we need to grasp this. Let me, let me back up. I need to grasp this. There is no way that I'm ever going to speak of the gospel in such an eloquent way that people are going to accept and trust Jesus simply at the way I present it. Not going to happen. It's going to happen as I live my life, as I go, 
I talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is the truth and the power of transformation of those that would believe. And then God will take his word into the hearts of individuals around me and transform them. And transform them. That makes it so much easier for me that I'm called to be a witness. There's no pressure for a witness if you're called to trial. You're simply there to give an account of what you've seen and heard, right? That's what God's called us to be who trust him and believe him, to give an account of what he has done in my life and his power to transform others. That's the gospel. Application briefly. I want to ask you a question. Are you kicking against the goads this morning? Has God placed people in your life? As you've read his word, has he placed truth in your heart? And you find yourself kicking against that? If you're a believer here, let me tell you, there's no good that's going to come from that. God's going to have his way. He may have to break you. He may have to dig that goad even deeper into your life to get your attention, but he will accomplish his purpose. And friend, that may be here this morning and you're wrestling with sin. And you're really concerned that if you were to leave this world today, that you are not prepared to stand before a holy God. I pray you listen to the truth of the gospel this morning. I pray you heed the goading of the Holy Spirit that's illuminating in your heart the truth of the gospel. That your sins, no matter how grievous, can be forgiven this morning. Simply by coming and calling upon the Lord. Last thing, and this will go real quick. Paul resisted, but then he trusted, but then he purposely spread the truth. This thing, Jesus had got so much a hold of him, he could not stop talking about Christ. He spent the remainder of his years proclaiming the gospel, and now 2,000 years later, we who follow Christ are striving to do the same thing. It's why we live simply for this month and give sacrificially. It's why we pray earnestly. And it's why many of us will go to the darkest parts of the world. I believe what happened in the Polynesian islands. Now, I'm not saying they are Christianized or evangelical or anything else. I'm just saying a cultural transformation occurred that stopped the needless killing of children and adults and eating one another because Christ intervened. But it's why we sacrificially give, it's why we sacrificially go, and we just trust God for the increase. One final observation about Paul, if you look at chapter 26, verse 20. Paul kept declaring the gospel, obviously, both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Where did Paul start first? He was already heading to Damascus to take some Christians' prisons. The minute he got there, I got good news. Here I thought that I was going to imprison you, but I myself have been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He began sharing the gospel to those he came in contact with first, but didn't stop there. His eyes were further. To those foreign cities that he was going to go to to persecute, he is now going to proclaim the gospel that might set free. Church, are you excited that we're a part of that picture? I pray it excited your heart 
when Brother Mike shared about Ethiopia and all that's going on there. And then you got to ask your question. Ask this question. What if uh, nobody went? What if nobody sent? What if nobody prayed? They would still be in darkness. They'd still be in darkness. Let's pray. Father, it is in the name of Jesus, God, that we come this morning. And Father...